Uh, Romans chapter 8. Go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be there in just a moment. The word for is an interesting word. When you hear the word for, what do you think of? What comes to mind? Uh, Here are a few ideas. In favor of, not against, supportive, to help someone win, pro. Uh, Today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and so when we say that we are pro-life, we're saying we are for life. We are for life from the womb to the tomb. That we're for the flourishing of life, that we value life. We are, we are pro, we are for. Here's something that everyone should know about for. God is for you. God is for you. And of everything that you hear today, that is the most simple, that is the most basic, but I am telling you, it is by far the most important. God is for you. It doesn't matter what else we do in our life. It does not matter all the things that we try, all the endeavors that that we try to achieve. If we do not understand that God is for us, if we do not see that as our foundation and as our starting point, as the fuel for everything that we do, then we will inevitably have a warped view of God and a warped view of ourselves. When it comes to Christian theology, just about all roads run through Romans. Paul's letter to the church in Rome is arguably the single most important piece of literature in the history of the world. And of the greatest theological literary work, chapter 8 is perhaps its greatest section. And in chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 is the climax of this greatest section. It's actually an inference of everything that Paul says from Romans 5, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 30 about the glorious results of our justification. It's as if the apostle takes a deep breath as he thinks over of everything that he has covered in Romans 5, 1 through 8, 30, and then he tells God's people in verse 31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? That second question, if God is for us, who can be against us, it's a rhetorical question. But the force of it is a proposition. The the way that, that we would understand it better would be this. Since God is for us, nothing can be against us. You see, the reality is God does not want you to simply exist. God wants you to live a full life. John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come so that they, meaning you and me, might have life and have it to the full, to have it abundantly. God created you to experience life in a thrilling and exciting way. That's why you like to laugh. That's why you like to sing out loud. That's why you, you crave and you look for adventure. Because there's something in you that wants to enjoy being alive. There's something in you that tells you there's got to be more than a mundane, monotonous existence. That's why you don't want to miss out on whatever's happening that's fun. Have you ever stopped and really thought about why you like to have fun in the first place? We never think about that, do we? But I think that is evidence that God is real. 
And just like a good father would want you to enjoy whatever he gives you, God wants you to engage life in a positive way. But if God is real, you also have to consider the idea that evil could be real. Maybe you should consider the possibility that there are really two forces at life. One that wants to kill your potential and one that wants to fuel your potential. There's one that hopes to propel you in a direction that will empty your life, and there's one that wants to move you toward an experience of life that will be fulfilling. And that's why God is so persistent in making sure that you know his story, that that since the beginning of time, you'd know that he has a plan for your life to know him, to experience living the way that he has dreamed for you. No matter what you learn, No matter what you do, don't ever forget the glorious reality that God is for you. The second reality that we have to understand is God sent Jesus to prove he's for you. Jesus showed up basically to tell you that God is for you. He showed up to say that this is what God the Father is like. I'm revealing the heart of of the Father. John 3, 16 says, for God, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have, present tense, eternal life. According to Jesus, he didn't come so that one day in the future you might go to heaven and live forever. The salvation you've received isn't limited to future tense blessings. He came so that you could start living forever right now. It's an interesting idea that not only does Jesus want you to feel more alive because you follow him, but he wants you to realize that eternity can be in your heart right now, that you can see the world, you can see God, you can see other people, you can see yourself from God's point of view. Following Jesus actually gives you an advantage in how you experience life. You say, why is that? Because Jesus came to confront all the things that want to steal your potential to live. He even came to challenge our definition of religion. He came to put an eternal perspective in your heart that can radically affect how you experience love and life. And so as Paul continues writing through Romans chapter 8, he he reinforces this thought in several different ways. Again, verse 31, we read it with the understanding, since God is for us, nothing can be against us. And as as Paul writes that, it's almost as if he anticipated that we would question that proposition. It's almost like he knew that we'd be like, hold on, is that really true? How How can I know that God is really for me? Because the way things have been going in my life, I'm not really sure I can believe that. And so Paul supports his assertion with four proofs. Uh, Proof number one, he says, God will graciously give us all things. We read this in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul is, is using a rhetorical device here where he is arguing from the greater to the lesser. 
He's saying if God gave us the greatest gift, that is he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, then God will certainly give us everything else that we need. That is, he will also, with Jesus, graciously give us all things. This is evidence that since God is for us, nothing can be against us. Proof number two, no one will bring a charge against us. We read in verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. No one can take us to court before God and win a case against us because God himself is the one who has declared us righteous. That's further evidence that since God is for us, nothing can be against us. A proof number three, no one will condemn us. Verse 34, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. No one can condemn us to hell on judgment day because Jesus himself died for us. He was raised for us. He's now sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. We are secure in the loving arms of Jesus. And so I have to ask, That is even, I have to say, that is even more evidence that since God is for us, there is nothing that can be against us. Proof number four, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. We read in verses 35 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, Christ loves us, and there is no enemy, there is no weapon, there is no calamity that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What more evidence do we need that since God is for us, nothing can be against us? So it starts with the understanding that God is for you. And we know that's true because the proof is that God sent Jesus to prove he's for you. The third reality that we need to understand is that God has surrounded you with people who are for you. Do you know why that is? Because he designed us to be in relationship together. That's why this idea of the church is so important to him. That's why his design was for his followers to represent that God is for people. Uh, The the word Christian, when when you become a Christian, it, it literally means a little Christ, that you are a representative of Christ, that you are an example of Christ. And because Jesus was sent to show that God is for people, we represent Christ and show that like God is for people, so are we. It's a sad thing in today's world that there are so many 
Christians who have missed out on this idea. It's becoming increasingly popular in our world today for people to, to view their relationship with God as a purely personal, individual relationship with God. And yes, we do have a personal relationship with Jesus. But that does not neglect, that does not exclude the corporate relationship that we have with Christ. So many Christians today think that, that, that they, can, they can follow Jesus simply by listening to, to, to sermons on podcasts. That, that they, can, they can read their Bible and they can all do it in, in, in the safety of, of their own home, that, that there's nobody else that, that needs to, to be involved in their life. For them to follow Jesus, it's all personal. But the good news is there are many people who have learned the secret of seeing the world and even seeing others like you the way that God does. And if you pay attention and you look around, you will realize that you are surrounded by people who are for you. There are people in this church that are for you. They want you to win. They want you to thrive. They want you to live the way that God intended. Now, for some of you, that's your parents. For others of you, that, that's your peers, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. But for every single one of you, it can be someone who is a part of your spiritual family. Your family that, that is united together with you in Christ. Your spiritual family that will spend all of eternity with you. They're called the church. And that is a powerful thought that you actually have another family that can show you how your heavenly father loves you. This is what Jesus intended when he said, on this rock I will build my church. He wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about a people an ecclesia, a group of called out ones. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, he uses this analogy that, that is so vivid of, of the church being like a body. And as a body, we, we know that there are many different parts that make up a body. You've got eyes, and you've got a nose, and you've got hands, and you've got feet, and, and each part of the body has a role, and each part of the body has a function to play that supports the body. And in the same way, Paul describes the church as a body. It's made up of many different people. It's made up of many different parts, and each part has a role. Each part has a function. We all have different gifts and different abilities, but we all contribute to the whole. We are together the church. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, he says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And what that does is it helps color our understanding. That, that when, when you're struggling, that, that when you're suffering, you don't do it in isolation, but you have a church, you have a people who are for you, that they feel it too. That they come alongside you and they care about you because we're part of the same body. And on, on the other side, when, when, when you rejoice, when you have reason to celebrate, other people aren't envious of that, but no, they come alongside of you and they support you and they celebrate you in that time. Number four, God has created you to be for other people. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says, for we are God's handiwork or God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. 
Now, it's important that we don't read Ephesians 2.10 in isolation from verses 8-9, because Ephesians 2.8-9 talks about, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, that this is not the, the work of yourselves, it's the gift of God. You see, we are saved for a purpose. When we put our faith in Christ, when, when we come up out of the waters of baptism, that is not the finish line. That is the starting line. We're just getting started. We are saved for a purpose. We are saved to serve. We, we, are, we are saved to live on mission. It is built within you to love others. The image of a good and generous God is a part of your soul's DNA. And yes, there is a tendency for you to drift towards selfishness and to drift towards greed. But whenever you say yes to serving someone, whenever you say yes to help someone, whenever you say yes to love someone, there's something that is sparked within you. It's just more evidence that God is for you and God is for others. 1 Peter 4.10, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve yourself. No. You should use whatever gift you have received to what? To serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. This desire inside of you to be connected, to be in a relationship, to belong, that same desire exists in everyone around you. And God is the one who put it there. And God wants you to experience something that is so much bigger than you ever dreamed. He wants you to understand what happens to your life and what happens to your heart when you start living like you are for others. You know, maybe that's what Jesus was explaining that day he confronted a Pharisee. There was a teacher of the law who came up to Jesus and asked him what the greatest commandment was. And I think that, that he wasn't there honestly thinking, searching and, and, and trying to ask Jesus the answer to that question. I think he was trying to trap Jesus. I think he was trying to twist Jesus in his words. He was trying to get Jesus to say something that would be presented as being against the law. But Jesus, so brilliant, he responds in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The essence of what Jesus is saying is the greatest commandment is to love God. But there's this uh, second commandment that's intricately linked to the first commandment. He actually suggested that you can't separate loving God from loving your neighbor. That, that if you truly love God, you will be compelled, it will naturally flow into you loving other people. And so what would happen, for example, if we, if we didn't just say we believe the great commandment? But what if we started acting like we believe it? What if how we love God really did affect the way that we love our neighbor? Michael was a five-year-old. He showed up to a courthouse for an adoption hearing with his foster parents. And when he arrived, he found some surprise visitors waiting for him sitting in the courtroom. It was his entire kindergarten class. Michael's teacher, Mrs. McKee, got the idea when she encountered Michael's foster mom dropping him off at school one day. 
The two of them met together and they came up with a plan and Mrs. McKee organized the entire ordeal, the field trip, the bus, all the arrangements. You see, in the year or so since Michael had been with the couple, his father had remarked about how amazed he was that the other children had welcomed him into their homes and into their social circles. In the courtroom that day, the highlight was during a portion of the hearing where the judge, who'd never had an entire kindergarten class hosted in his courtroom before, he went and asked the students one by one to explain why they were there in support. And so they, they all kind of one by one began to share touching answers. Like, I love Michael. Michael's my friend. Michael sits next to me in class. You see, church, when we show up for those who are in need, when we show up as a friend, when we show up as an advocate, when we show up as a supporter, we are modeling the behavior of the early church, but more important, we are modeling the love of Jesus by showing others that we are for them because God is for them. If five-year-old kindergartners can do that, I think we can too. What could it look like if we actually started acting like we love our neighbors? But what does it mean for, for our neighbors? What does it mean to be for our neighbors in this community? What, what if every one of us in this church just started acting like we are for other churches? What if our church decided that, that we want other churches to win? What if we didn't view other churches as the competition, but instead we saw other churches as partners in gospel ministry? What if we saw other churches as, as local expressions of the greater capital C church, the greater body of Christ, that, and, and together we work to build the kingdom of God? What, what would that look like practically? What if we started acting like we are four Wabash families? Now, if you're here today and you live in a different community, Let's say you live in, in Peru. I, I want you to, to fill in that blank. And what would it look like for you to be for Peru families? If you live in Huntington, I, I want you to, to, to write in Huntington. What would it look like for you to be for Huntington families? What if we started caring about families that are hurting? Even if they don't come to this church. Even if they don't go to any church. What if we started acting like we were for Wabash neighborhoods? Even neighborhoods where people don't look like us. Even with people who don't have the same values as, as us or the same lifestyle as us. What, what would happen if, if the upper class community started acting like they were for the lower class community? How would we build bridges? How would we show them that, that we respect them and we want them to thrive? In your bulletin today, you'll see a, a hospitality guide that, that looks like this. I want to tell you, if, if all we accomplish through this four series, if all we accomplish through this four movement is saying that we are four people, I'm sorry, we have sorely missed the mark. We don't just want to say that we're four people. We want to truly be four people, both in word and in action. 
And so each week what we've tried to do is to make this simple, to make this stick with, with actionable steps that we can tangibly put into practice. And so week one, we handed out four car magnets, and the challenge was for you to put a magnet on your car and, and to go through a drive through and, and pay it backwards, to pay for the, for the person's meal or the person's drink behind you, and, and that way when, when they see the car magnet, they, they would, they'd be told that that person in, in front of them paid for their meal, and that, that would begin to spark some, some conversations at work and at home, and it would begin to spark some conversations with, with their families. And, and then last week, when, when you left, we, we gave you a, a bag of cookie mix, and, and the challenge was for you to, to bake cookies, preferably for, for someone you know, a neighbor, someone in your community who had said no to Jesus, someone who had said no to church, somebody who was maybe a part of the church in the past, but they aren't anymore, and then to deliver those cookies and just let them know that, that you care about them, that you were thinking about them, that, that you were for them. And that begins to create conversations. It begins to create common ground. So this week, the, the challenge is, is, is we want you to, to invite a neighbor over, somebody in the community over for dinner. Now, if, if, if you've got kids at home, I, I, want, I want this to be a family thing. I want you to, to get together with your kids. I want you to talk about, I want you to pray about who God is leading you to invite over for a meal. If you're single, if, if you live by yourself, I want you to, to, to pray and ask God who he's leading you to invite over. If it's you and your spouse, I, I want you to, to talk about and pray about who God is leading you to invite over for a meal. Now, it could be the person that you gave cookies to. It could be somebody totally different. But the idea is, is you, once you identify who that person is, you, you, you extend the invitation. And you try to get a date on the calendar that works for everybody, and you schedule the meal. You, you talk to them. You ask what kind of food they like. You, you get what kind of food you're going to have. And as you get closer to the day, you, you send them a reminder and let them know you're looking forward to having them over. And we've given you some tips for, for once you have the, the meal and they're over, some things that you can talk about, some conversation starters. And we pray and hope that you have a good meal together, but, but it doesn't stop when the meal's over. This isn't some checkbox that, that, that you can just, hey, I, I did my duty, I'm done. No. We really want to see the meal as just the beginning. We want this to be a family. We want this to be a person that, that you continue the conversation with. You build a relationship with. Maybe you go to, to First Friday with them. Maybe you find some, some common ground. You find some things that they like to do that you like to do, and, and you begin to build that relationship with them. What if we started acting like we are four Wabash community leaders? What would happen if, if we started praying for the leaders here more often? What, what, if, what if we started seeing them as, as real people, not just elected officials. What if, what if we just didn't complain to them about all the things that frustrate us, but, but we, we thank them for leading? We, we, we show them gratitude for their leadership. Well, what if we started acting like we are four Wabash teachers in schools? What can we do to encourage the teachers who spend every day with kids and teenagers in this community? Just do the math. We may have 40 hours of influence with the average kid every year as a church. But the average teacher will have over 1,200 hours of influence with a kid. 
If we want the kids and teenagers in this community to win, we have to be willing to help the teachers and schools in this community win. Here's the point. Here's why we're talking about this in church. Because if there's one group of people in this community that should lead the charge to be four people, it should be us. Because we know the love and grace of a God who has been for us. We should be a living demonstration and a light to a generation by being for others. Church, if we don't do this, who will? The church is God's plan A. There is no plan B. So let's get to work. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you humbled that you would choose us to be a part of your mission to reconcile all things to yourself. God, that is a privilege and that is an honor, and God, I pray that we would not take that lightly. I pray that, that we, would, we would recognize that because you are for people, you have called us to be for people. But God, all that starts with the amazing understanding that you are for us. May we never, ever get over that. May we never treat that lightly. May we never toss it to the side that the God of all creation loves us. You loved me. So much that you sent your son to die for us so that we could be in a relationship with you for all eternity. God, if there's someone here today who has never come to the realization that you are for them, that you love them, that you sent Jesus to die for them, I pray that they would, they would come to that understanding, they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and that if we would put our faith and our trust in you, that you would forgive us of our sins you would give us the hope of eternal life, that our lives could be changed forever. And when we grasp that, we can't help but be for others. Because once we've experienced your love, we have to share that love. May that be true for this church. In Jesus' name, amen.